here. My name is David. I'm the pastor here at Stonebridge. If you've got a Bible, you can turn to Revelation 21. Middle school, uh, if you want and your parents are good with it, you can go out with Jeremy. He'll have something for you guys. So parents, if your kids are going with Jeremy, at the end of the service, you'll pick up from that youth room. So just go down the stairs and you'll go to the left when you hit the landing, that main area where you walked in. So you'll just go to the left when you get to the bottom of this. It's actually kind of straight, but veer to the left or you'll run into a wall. And you can get your children there. And next week, we're going to try, just parents, this may help you, we're going to try to pull out rising first through rising fifth. So we're going to try to do that uh, next week. We should be able to. Uh, so that may, may help some of you guys uh, moving forward as well. All right. So Revelation 21 and 22, so we've been looking for the past two weeks. This is our third week looking at our forever. What does the future look like for us? There's a new heavens and a new earth that's a parallel to what we see in Genesis 1 when God created this heavens and this earth. And this new heavens and new earth, there's a new order. So the, the curse has been erased. All of the effects of the fall have been eradicated. And we can't really fathom what that looks like because sin and its consequences have so infected everything. Us, our bodies, our relationships, the world, that we can't really fathom what that looks like, but that's where we're headed. This new order where, again, there, there, there is no curse, there's no sin or its consequences. Last week we said there's also a new city. And this new city in Revelation has, it's an image with two different meanings. It's the new Jerusalem, it's a place. So it's, it's a parallel to Genesis chapter 2. In all of the world, God creates this garden. Here's the Garden of Eden where he puts Adam and Eve and says, here you're going to work and you're going to live and you're going to relate to me and to one another and you're going to rest. He does the same thing in the new creation. He creates a new place. It's called the New Jerusalem. It's a garden city. It has elements of the Garden of Eden and elements of a city. And he says, in this special location, that's where you're going to live and that's where you're going to work and that's where you're going to relate to me and to one another, and that's where you're going to rest. And that new city is also a person, the bride of Christ, the, 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 the wife of the Lamb, whose primary characteristic is holiness, being set apart from sin and everything that defiles, and being set apart for Jesus in relationship with him. Today we're going to look at the final element that we see in Revelation of our future, and it's a new dynamic, a new way of relating to God. It's not necessarily brand new. It's more of a, maybe we'll call it an intensification of what we can experience now. So I'm going to just jump around. The verses will be on the screen. Uh, a couple of different places in chapter 1 and chapter 22. So chapter 21, verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. So there's the new dynamic. God is now dwelling with his people Skip down to verse 22. I did not see a temple in, the, in this new city, this new Jerusalem, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it. Nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. 
chapter 22, verse 3, no longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their forehead. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God Almighty will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. This new dynamic, God dwelling with us, four different pictures. Remember, this is all vision. So it's 100% true, but it's not literal. And so we don't want to press the details too much. Four different ways uh, we see this idea of this new dynamic, God dwelling with his people. One is there's no temple any longer. So uh, in the Old Testament, there there was a, a tabernacle and there was a temple. So a tabernacle is like a portable sanctuary. God gave Moses a blueprint. At that point, the Israelites were wandering in the wilderness. It wouldn't do them any good to build a permanent structure because they were always on the move. So God gives Moses a blueprint basically for a a tent that would be a sanctuary. And there's lots of details, but in this sanctuary, in this tabernacle, there's one room, and it's a cube, 15 feet by 15 feet by 15 feet. And it's called the Holy the most holy place, or the holy of holies. And that's where God said to, quote, live. The limits of of limitations of language here. So we know God's omnipresent, but he's present in a special way in this cube. Fast forward, Solomon builds a temple. The Israelites have entered into the promised land. It's theirs. They've taken Jerusalem. It's theirs. There's peace on every side. And so Solomon builds a temple. And in the temple, there's a special room, the holy place, excuse me, the most holy place, the holy of holies. It's a 20-foot cube, 20 by 20 by 20. That's where God is said to live. One guy, the high priest, can enter into that room one day a year, the Day of Atonement. That's it. One guy, once a year, into this cube where God is said to live. If you remember last week when we were talking about the new Jerusalem, this new city, it's also laid out like a cube, 12,000 stadia, 1,400 miles long and wide and high. It's not about, you don't need a tape measure. It's not about how, it's not about the distance. That's just saying it's huge. It's a massive city laid out like a cube. And what that communicates is the whole thing is now the holy of holies. The whole thing is now the most holy place. There's no need for a temple. There's no need for there to be one room in one building, in one city, for one people who can go meet God. Because now God's presence fills the entire new Jerusalem. The entirety of this new creation will be like the temple. You don't have to go to a special place any longer. There's a progression. We go from a 15-foot cube to a 20-foot cube to the New Testament. We know that God no longer lives in a building. Now we're the temple of the Holy Spirit individually and collectively So God was, quote, confined to a room in the time of Moses and confined to a room. And again, hear that in quotes in the time of Solomon. And now we would say he's confined in the hearts of the two billion people who are following Jesus. And the time is coming where we won't be confined anymore. Where everywhere that we go, we'll experience what that priest, that high priest experiences one day a year in that one little cube. That makes sense. The, the, John says the Lamb, the, the God, the Father, and the Lamb, Jesus, are the temple. That's an interesting phrase. How do the Father and the Son become the temple? In Genesis 3, 
we read that God walks in the garden in the cool of the day. And that's kind of the, that to me is a parallel. To say that the Father and the Son or the temple, it's again a bit irreverent, but it's almost like you can bump into God anywhere. Again, there's not a special place because every place is filled with the glory of God. And again, we know God is omnipresent, so he is everywhere, but this is his presence, it's a, it's a different degree. If you go back and read uh, the stories, you can read it in Ezekiel, you can read it in Second uh, Chronicles, you can read it in uh, Exodus. When God fills that little cube, it's different. The experience that people have is different than God's just kind of what we would say his omnipresence. And we're going to experience that different, that unmediated sense of God's nearness to us. There's no need for a temple any longer. No light. That's the other idea. So there's, there, there, there's no need for any artificial light. There's no sun. There's no moon. There's no lamp. So in this cube, this holy of holies, there's no windows. And there's no candles. There's no source of light. So it's a room without windows. And outside of the most holy place is the holy place. And the holy place are candles. And they burn all the time, 24-7. But there's a four-inch thick curtain that separates the holy place from the most holy place. There, there, there's no light in there. The idea is the glory of God is all the light the high priest will need. When he goes into this cube, with that, and the only thing in there is the Ark of the Covenant, when he goes in there, the glory of God will give him all the light that he needs to do his priestly duties. We have that same picture in this new Jerusalem, this new dynamic we don't need any artificial light anymore because the glory of God is lighting up this entire new Jerusalem. And don't think about that in terms of light bulbs and the sun. Don't think about it necessarily in terms of physical light. Remember, this is all vision. It's true, but not literal. John often uses light and dark theologically. Jesus is the light of the world. That doesn't mean he's a, not the light bulb of the world. He's a light of the world. He's providing spiritual illumination. Dark in the Gospel of John. Usually it's not about the time of day. Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. It's a time of spiritual confusion. Judas betrays Jesus at night. It's a time of spiritual darkness. That's a phrase that we use, spiritual darkness. In this new Jerusalem, there is no night. I think about what Paul says, now we know in part and then we'll know fully. I think that's what, I think that's what Paul is get, or excuse me, what John is getting at. To say there's no sun, there's no moon, to say that there's only light, that the Father and the Son are the light, and to be able to say there is no night, I think what John is seeing is then we know, now, excuse me, we know partially, and then we'll know fully. I think about, I don't mean... I don't think it means we're going to know everything. We're not going to become omniscient. I don't know that you're going to know who killed JFK or what's in Area 51. But I think you will know the things that you need to know. I think about the things that maybe you've had to accept in faith, that you've had to take in faith. I think those pieces, those questions maybe get answered and those pieces fall into place. I don't know that some angel is going to come and sit down to you and explain everything. I think it's more the gift of perspective that we're going to get. Once we can see all of it. I think about Joseph and he has a dream when he's a teenager and he doesn't understand it. And it's his 
family, his older brothers and his mom and dad bowing down to him, and it doesn't make sense. And being a teenager, he just kind of blurts it out. And he has this 13-year odyssey. He's sold into slavery. He's falsely accused of sexual assault. He's thrown in jail and then forgotten about. He winds up at 30 years old being put in front of Pharaoh and rightly interprets a couple of dreams. And so then he's what's called the vice president of Egypt. And then seven years, seven plus years later, so 20 plus years after this dream, his brothers come and bow down in front of him because it's a time of famine. And Joseph has, is running the, 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 uh, the economy of Egypt at that point. So if you want grain, you've got to go to Joseph. And I'm wondering in that moment when his brothers are bowing down before him, if some of the pieces start to click for him. If some of the questions that he had, if some of the things that he had to take in faith, if some of the times he's going, why and why me and, and why not? And I wonder how many of you are in that same place where you've cried those same things to the Lord. Why me? Why not me? Why now? Why not? And you just had to take it in faith. I'm wondering... In this new heavens and new earth and this new Jerusalem, which is a temple, if you'll know where there is no night, and the Father and the Son are the light, if those questions all get answered. You get the gift of perspective and you're able to see. Joseph's able to see what he thought was this long and winding and twisting road. But how else does the son of a Jewish farmer become this vice president of the Egyptian empire. They don't post that job. You don't get to apply for it. Where else does a farmer's son and the favorite, so probably didn't even have to do that much work, where does that guy learn how to run a, a global economy? And in that moment, if some of those things begin to fall into place for them, oh, I learned how to be a steward in Potiphar's house and then again at the jail. I learned how to submit in those places. I learned how to trust God. I don't know all of the things for him, all of the whys and the why nots that he asked. And it will be, I think, for us, that to the perfection, to the perfected degree, were the questions that you've had about you. Again, not just casual wonderings, but the things that you've had to take in faith if suddenly those things become clear. We'll see God face to face. It's the third image. It's an easy thing to overlook. Think about that. What does it mean to look God in the eye? Like, think about that. God tells Moses, nobody can look at his face and live. Jesus says, nobody has seen the Father except him who's been sent by the Father. What does it mean for us, me and you, to be able to look God in the eye? We've done a disservice in the American church, I think, with the best of intentions and the, I think, noble motives. We wanted people to be saved, and so we've reduced salvation to a transaction. Admit that you're a sinner. Believe that Jesus died for you and confess that he's your Lord, and you get a ticket. You don't have to burn forever. You can avoid the lake of fire from Revelation 20. You don't have to go to hell. And we've reduced salvation to this transaction. Pray the sinner's prayer. Avoid hell. Who wants, I don't know anybody that wants to burn forever. Like, who, who passes up that deal? That's not what God's interested in. We've made forgive, the forgiveness of our sins the sum total of why Jesus came to the earth. 
It's really important, but it's the means to an end. The end has always been relationship. What God has always been looking for is a people that he can call his own. That's why he created this heavens and this earth in the first place. It's why he created Adam and Eve and put them here. It was so he could have a people. It's why he called Abraham out of all the nations of the earth. It's why he sent Jesus to redeem for himself a nation where Israel had failed. He's always been looking for a people. He wants people that he can see face to face. Go back and read the story in Exodus, how heartbreaking it must be for a God who desires relationship to hear the people that he has just redeemed from slavery when they see his presence on the mountain saying, Moses, will you go for us? Not interested. That looks pretty scary to me. We do the same thing. What does it do to the heart of a God who sent his son to redeem a people when we say, I just want, I'm just trying to avoid hell. How far away from you can I get and still be in the club? Don't hear that as a, as a condemnation, but an encouragement. Recognize what your eternity is. John 17, 3, this is eternal life. Knowing the Father and the Son who sent him. If you're not interested, if I'm not interested, I don't want heaven. Heaven is hell if you don't want to look God in the eyes. Because that's what you're going to be doing. It's face-to-face. It's intimate relationship. Knowing fully. Paul says, right now we see in a mirror. Mirrors were made out of bronze and tin and silver. The reflection wasn't great. Then we'll see clearly. We'll see perfectly. We'll see fully. That's where all of us, that's where all of this is headed. It's where you're headed and where I'm headed. It's what God has wanted from the beginning is a people he could call his own. And if we're not interested in being his people, then we're not interested in eternity with him. Because that's the essence of it. It's relationship. If you listen to a guy like me and you kind of bought the get out of hell free card idea, let me apologize and say, spend the next weeks and months and years saying, God put within me a desire to look you in the face. Put within me a desire to be one of to, to, to be your people. Make that the thing that stirs my heart. That gets me up in the morning. The idea of knowing you more. And for some of you, that is so foreign. And I would say, just begin to ask him. Just begin to ask, and he'll begin to stir and deepen that desire in you because it's what he wants. He's waiting on us to respond. Last thing, and then we'll be done. These three phrases, God will be our God and we'll be his people. We just talked about that. Think about that through the the lens or the metaphor of parent-child. I think that's the most helpful. We have a father in heaven who wants to, to adopt us into his family as sons and daughters and give us all the rights that come with being in his family. His, the throne of the father and the son is in the city and his servants will serve him. That word serve, is it's a worship word. It speaks to the priestly duties, religious rites that somebody would perform. We'll worship him forever. And some of that is singing. We worship him with our mouth and praise, but we also worship him with our hands. We talked about that the past couple of weeks. We'll continue, I think, to do work 
It'll be work without toil and work without thorns and without thistles and without the sweat of our brow. So we can't really fathom what that is. Don't think of your job. But the things that God has put deeply in your heart that bring you life and joy, you'll continue to do those things. And as you do those things, that's a way that you're going to worship God. When we use the gifts that he's given us to his glory and to bless other people, that's worship. And then we, the Bible says we're going to reign. And again, I don't know what that looks like. That was the original command and commission mandate for Adam and Eve. Rule, reign, rule over everything that God has made. And we hear that word and we immediately think domination. What does rule look like in a world where there is no ego and there is no pride and there is no hidden agenda and there is no uh, selfish ambition where nobody's trying to make their own kingdom? We don't even know what that looks like. We're going to rule and reign with Jesus. Again, we're going to continue. I think that's, a, that's an extension of that idea of working. I don't know what we're going to be ruling, but I know that's, that's your future. Your future is as a son or a daughter, your primary identity. One who's been adopted into the family of God. And the things that you're going to be doing and I'm going to be doing, we're going to be serving God, worshiping with our mouth and with our hands, and we're going to be ruling with Jesus, whatever that happens to look like. That's the future that God has created for us. I was thinking about this. I hadn't fully thought it all the way through, but this morning when I was standing up at the 9 o'clock service, I was thinking it's been about 100 days since we've been here, and we've had three major crises. We've had a global pandemic, a global recession, and national unrest. We're in the midst of all of those things, and it's been three months. That's it. In three months. We're living in the midst of history. We just can't see it yet. At some point, somebody's going to write a book on March 15th to June 15th, 2020. And they're going to have some perspective. We don't have it. We're just trying to get through it. Looking to the future, saying this is where we're headed, can help us live now. It can help inform the decisions that we make today. If we look and we say, this is where God is taking all of us. It's where he's taking creation and it's where he's taking his people. We know from the book of Revelation, he's going to judge all that's wicked. And so we can stand against all that's wicked. There's no racism in Revelation 21 and 22. So we can confidently stand against that. It's not going to be in the new heavens and the new earth. So you're on the side of God if you stand against that. Whatever that looks like in your life. We know that God is calling people to himself. He's asking people. We know from the book of Revelation. Calling people to repentance. Time after time after time. Extending himself in mercy and kindness and patience. And so that speaks to us. What do we do? We don't give up on anybody. We continue to extend the invitation kindness and patience and mercy. We know that God is forming a people who will be defined by holiness, being separated from all that defiles and being separated for Jesus. And so we can always be asking God, how are you trying to make me more holy? How are you trying to use these circumstances to make me more like Jesus and to make us more like Jesus? We know that God is taking us to a place Where there won't be a temple. He's taking us to a place where there won't be night. And we're not going to need an alternative source of light. Why? Because his presence is going to be so present. So tangible. So near. He's going to be walking in the garden in the cool of the day. 
walking in this garden city. And you can bump into him anywhere. And you can look him in the eye. Forming a people for himself. And so what does that say to us about where he's taking us right now? Calling us deeper into relationship. Asking us to press in. And again, that it's, not, you're not, it's not a sprint. It's over the course of your life. God, deepen my desire to be with you. I want to take a few minutes and pray, and we're going to close with worship. Close your eyes with me if you would. People are coming, for, you're coming from everywhere. All kinds of different things bouncing around in your heart and in your mind. Everybody's got a take on everything that's happening. If we sat down, it probably wouldn't take too long before we disagreed on something. All that's irrelevant. What we see in Revelation, we see it especially in 21 and 22, that's this picture of where it's all headed. We get a sneak peek at the last chapter. We're somewhere in the middle of the book. God lets us see how it's going to end, and that's, that does encourage us, and it gives us hope, absolutely. I think it can also inform the way we live while we're in the chaotic middle. And so I would ask you now, just begin to ask the Holy Spirit to speak to you in your own heart. What does it look like for me to be faithful to what you're doing in my life and in this community right now? What does it look like for me to be faithful in light of the fact that you're forming a people for yourself? That you desire a people who will look you in the eye, who will see you face to face. What does it look like for me to be faithful now knowing that my eternal future is dwelling with you in that cube, that place where you live? God, what does it look like for me to be faithful to you, knowing that you're judging all that is evil and all that is wicked? What does it look like for me to be faithful to you, knowing you continue to extend yourself to those who are hostile and resistant to you? That you continue to call them to yourself? What does it look like for me to be faithful to you, knowing that what you're asking of me is to be holy like you're holy? You can't do all five of those things. It's one. Holy Spirit, would you speak to everyone, our youngest kid to our oldest adult? Would you show us what it looks like for us to be faithful today in the midst of we are living history right now? This is going to be an important chapter, 2020, when they write the books. And we want to be faithful We're not looking to get our name in the book. We're not looking to be famous. We're not looking to push our own agenda. We just want to be faithful to what you put in front of us. Both in this community, in this world. And we just, we recognize our hope is in you, Jesus. Our hope is not in a government program. Our hope is certainly not in an election in November. Our, our, our hope is not in some brilliant idea from a think tank. or Our hope is in you, Jesus. And we want to be faithful. 
So would you show each one of us what does it look like to be faithful at home and at work? What does it look like for us to be faithful as husbands and wives and sons and daughters and brothers and sisters and employers and employees, as members of this city? And God, show us. I pray, God, that we would keep the end in mind as we're living in the middle. When we're tempted to give up hope and maybe shift into denial, when we're tempted to throw up our hands and resignation, would you remind us you're always working. There's there's an end, there's a destination, and it's sure and certain. We can bank on it. You say our hope is like an anchor in this inner cube. It's it, it that pulls us forward, and I pray that's what it would be for us. Would you show us again what it looks like to be faithful and then empower us on Monday and Wednesday and Thursday to live obediently to you. In Jesus' name, amen.